final remarks brief, then we'll get right into uh, our afternoon session here. Uh, our final guest lecturer for our two weeks together in this uh, seminar is uh, Juan Williams, a senior correspondent for National Public Radio, contributing political analyst for the Fox News Channel and a regular panelist on Fox News Sunday. He's best-selling author of the companion book to a documentary I'm sure most of you, if not all, are familiar with, Eyes on the Prize, uh, excellent uh, documentary series, The Civil Rights Years, 1954 to 65, and I think there's a six-part uh, follow-up to that uh, as well. Uh, and also author, of course, of the book that you all now own, a wonderful biography of um, Thurgood Marshall, American Revolutionary. Uh, he has, I just found out, a completed uh, new book that's going to be coming out shortly, uh, entitled, take a deep breath, Enough, <laughs> the phony leaders, dead-end movements, and culture of failure that are undermining black America and what we can do about it. <laughs> it's a little longer than the title that I heard <laughs> earlier, which was essentially about Bill Cosby and race, which you guys, uh, one of one two of you brought up uh, that yesterday in our discussion of Booker T. Washington and uh, Du Bois. Uh, very much uh, looking forward to this discussion. As I mentioned earlier, we're kind of on a tight schedule today, so uh, we'll have his presentation and uh, some time for questions and answers. And that'll be it for our afternoon session. Please welcome Mr. Juan Williams. Thank you, Lucas. And uh, thanks to all of you for that warm greeting. Uh, welcome to Washington. I understand that you've been in Philadelphia and Gettysburg and now Washington. Uh, I guess the weather here is just perfect for you. <laughs> You know, it's funny, the weather in Washington, we're a swamp. I don't know if you've ever have been down in this area, go down by the State Department, it becomes quite apparent that they built it on a swamp. Uh, most of the federal land is on a swamp. And in the winter, it can get, I don't know why, but it can get freezing one minute, and then all of a sudden you get these terrible hot summers that we suffer through with all the humidity and the like and all the bugs. Uh, but just... Just, I would say, not two months ago, it was in the 30s here and freezing. I remember I was up on Capitol Hill, and I, I joked with my wife later. I said, you know, it was so cold, all the politicians were walking around with their hands in their own pockets. It was just freezing. <laughs> uh, but you get these sudden shifts in weather. Anyway, uh, I apologize for having a short schedule, but because I got this new book coming out, I'm trying to do radio interviews to talk to people about the book. Uh, it'll be in bookstores next week, so please take a look. But I, today I wanted to talk to you about Justice Marshall. And uh, I think the way that I would start this off today, given your experience in Philadelphia and Gettysburg, is to say that if you had the opportunity to be with giants of American history, if you were yourself a giant of American history, and someone like me, a very nosy, pesky reporter, came knocking and said, you know, I really want to write your biography, what would you say? Well, you know, if you're like me and, you know, you think, who is it that I would trust to write my biography? Who in the world would I trust with such a task to tell my story? Just imagine, if you will, maybe the 4th of July and you had your family together and your husband and your wife or your kids, friends, all around a picnic table and you had to pick out one person in your life to write your life story. Who would it be? 
Well, I know that if it's like me, I would say none of those people, please. Because <laughs> they all have grudges and they all know too much and they won't go, oh, you know, they all have their own saga. But if you're someone who's a person of history, it becomes all the more complex. And in the case of Thurgood Marshall, I approached him when I was doing Eyes on the Prize. Now, that was in the mid-1980s. And the reason I approached him was truly telling about my education as a young person in Brooklyn, New York. When I was growing up, my focus in terms of American history and with regard to the narrative of race relations in our country, I was much more focused on the drama, the rhetorical power of people like Dr. King or Malcolm X, who I understand you look at in the morning. But the idea of a Thurgood Marshall, I took him to be sort of an establishment, traditionalist figure, um, someone who had reached the height in terms of the traditions of American life, uh, you know, to be a Supreme Court justice, but someone who lacked the kind of energy and passion that as a young person I was seeking to identify with. So I didn't really understand who Thurgood Marshall was, didn't understand the, the magnitude of his contributions to American life. And so it wasn't until I started to do the work on Eyes on the Prize, and I kept coming back to the idea that, well, wait a second, who was it that undid the use of, let's say, restrictive covenants in American life, covenants that kept blacks, Jews, Hispanics from buying property in better neighborhoods in the country? You see the name Thurgood Marshall pop up. Or you start to look into the treatment of blacks in the military. And you say, well, who was it that went over to Southeast Asia to argue with General MacArthur about how blacks were being treated? And you see the name Thurgood Marshall pop up yet again. Or you start to get into arguments about, well, the service of blacks and here women as well on juries in American life. And who is it that's getting his life's written in Texas in order to prove the point that every American should have the right to do jury service. And again, here comes the name Thurgood Marshall. And I haven't even come to a decision, of course, that all of you know so well, the Brown decision. And so I, it struck me, wait a minute, this man lives in the same city that I'm living in. Nobody has ever written a biography of this man. Uh, it just seems to me unnatural that it would just be a wonderful story to tell. So I made some calls, got nothing in return. It's like, I always think to myself, it was a little bit like, you know how people buy lottery tickets and, you know, they don't get anything back. I made phone calls up to the Supreme Court and like the people who buy the lottery tickets, I got nothing back. And then uh, I went ahead and wrote Eyes on the Prize, came back to my work at the Washington Post. Uh, I actually shifted assignments. I was then doing uh, work for the Sunday Magazine. And every few months I'd write a note up to the court again with, along with a phone call now and then saying I'd request an interview with Justice Marshall and went beyond that to make requests of his friends, his family, his former clerks uh, and nothing, just nothing ever came back and then I'm not at my desk one day and the phone rings and the person on the other end says it's Thurgood Marshall and because I wasn't at the desk of course in those days we didn't have answering machines so much as we had receptionists and so the phone would ring over to the receptionist. The receptionist picks up the phone. The receptionist was a friend of mine. And she hears this voice say, this is Thurgood Marshall. I want to talk to your reporter, Juan Williams. And this young woman, knowing the kind of people I associate with, says, yeah, right, I bet you're Thurgood Marshall. <laughs> and he says, 
no, you know, this is Justice Marshall at the court, please. And she says, look, stop it. You know, I, I don't have time for this. We're busy right now. And bam, she hangs up the phone on him. You know? <laughs> now, I know that all of you are so important. And one day, we just had two Supreme Court appointments in the last year, so I guess any of you could end up on the court any minute. Uh, Justice Stevens looks like he's in rough shape in late 80s and all. So you should know that if you ever end up on the Supreme Court, you don't have to take people being that kind of rude to you in American life. In the case of Thurgood Marshall, he didn't even bother to call that rude young woman back. He simply called the publisher of the paper at the time, Catherine Graham, and got her on the phone. She took his call. Yes, she did. <laughs> and, uh, and she made apologies, and they then got Ben Bradley, who was then the editor of the paper, on the phone, and he was, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Justice. And then they found that young reporter, and then I got on the phone and said, oh, my God, Justice Marshall, you know, this woman's a friend of mine, and, you know, it's a lot of playing around and teasing about all the times that I've been writing to you and calling, and, by the way, why are you calling? <laughs> and he said something like, uh, four o'clock, come up and have tea. And then, bam, he hung up the phone on me. So... <laughs> I was totally at a loss. I didn't know what was going on. You know, I started calling again around town to say to people, you know, I got this call from Thurgood Marshall. He says, come up at 4 o'clock and have tea. But I don't know why. I mean, tea's okay with me, but why am I going, you know? And no one had a clue. And in fact, people were surprised that he had called, uh, said, call them back, you know, when I found out. So I didn't know, was I going up there, be, you know, for an interview? Or was I going up there because this was like a pre-interview for me, not for him, but he was going to, like, you know, have, gain a sense of me and whether or not he could trust me to do an interview. And, and was this for a magazine piece? What, what was this about? I had no idea. So anyway, to hell with it, I'm take the tape recorder and uh, take the notepad. I go up there. Uh, if you've been over there on First Street, you know, you go up the white marble steps and through the columns. Uh, the U.S. Marshals take you up to the second floor into a little room there while you wait for someone to come from the Justice's chamber to take you back and Everybody's saying hello because I'm on TV, and so people know me, and I go back and uh, finally go into the justice's chamber, and there's his secretary, and his secretary, Jane McHale, comes over to say hello, and she wants an autograph, and she says, you know, I, I don't know if you guys don't live here, but I used to be on a show called Inside Washington with Gordon Peterson, and so that was a major show at the time, especially in this area, and so she was very excited and w sort of wanted to talk current events, and, you know, I finally said to her, I said, you know, Mrs. McHale, I got to tell you, I am so nervous. I'm glad to sign this here, but I'm so nervous because I said, I feel like, I, 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 this may seem sort of old-fashioned to you guys, but I, I felt like, you know, what they call prickly heat, you know, when you feel like your body is like you're, like you're breaking out or something, right? And I said to her, you know, I just, I'm, I feel like I'm in a cold sweat and I have prickly heat, you know, because I, I, I just am so excited about the idea of going to finally get to see Thurgood Marshall. She said, oh, stop, stop. And I guess for her, it was an everyday thing. He was like a pain in the ass. <laughs> She says, he's waiting on you, you know, just go right back, no problem. And so I go back and there was, I walk through a room and it was filled with very hardworking, you know, smart young Harvard, Yale law graduates, all the law clerks, the Supreme Court clerks, and they don't even bother to look up at me. And then I'm in the doorway to his office and I can see Thurgood Marshall behind this dark oak desk and he is focused on some reading and in that instant, I have an opportunity to look around the room and gain, gain a sense of where I am. And on the wall, there is an animal skin. 
and I knew that this animal skin had been given to Marshall by Jomo Kenyatta, who was the president of Kenya. And the reason it was given to him was because when Kenya had gained its independence from Britain, they had asked one lawyer in all the world to come and write their constitution for this newly independent republic, and it was none other than Thurgood Marshall. And so here is his payment on the wall. And also on the wall was an original brief from the Brown case. And it is signed. There are two signatures on it, and I am peeking, and the second signature, the second signature is of the lawyer who argued against Thurgood Marshall in the case, a man who was a well-known segregationist, a man who had run, in fact, run for president on the Democratic Party and ticket in 24. And here, here is someone who you couldn't think of in terms of the arc of the American uh, experience with race. You couldn't think of anyone who was more diametrically opposed to Marshall, but here is Marshall's signature next to his and on the wall in his office. And then on the desk is a bust of Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist, the orator, the newspaper man, the man who taught himself how to read, spent so much time in Baltimore, and apparently a hero to another Baltimore native seated behind the desk, Thurgood Marshall. And then there is Thurgood Marshall, looking like a living statuary. I mean, you know, I would guess he was 280, you know, he's about six foot two or so, so he's way overweight. You could see his, you could see his uh, legs sticking out from the side of the desk. He was wearing thick white support, support hose, you know, those thick socks that older people wear who have circulatory problems. He's got a cane dangling from the corner of the desk that he will use, as I later see, when he stands up to steady himself. He's got thick glasses on, and, but tears running down his face because he's got glaucoma. So this is Thurgood Marshall, steely gray hair combed straight back. This is the reality. I mean, it's like a, someone out of history come to life. And I realized in that instant, oh my God, this is why I am having this physical reaction of nervousness. This is because, you know, most of the time when someone like me shows up in the office of a public official in Washington, they want to use you know, NPR's microphone to sell something to somebody, vote for me, send me money, campaign for me. Show up with a TV camera, they want to look good and get, you know, Fox's people to do something for them. Here was someone who wasn't interested in spinning anybody anyway. He had made history. And I felt, you know, was I sufficiently capable as a journalist of telling this story in a way that would help people to understand and see what I would consider to be a giant of history, but one who had not been advertised, one who was not a great speaker, one who, you know, nobody's made a movie about, well, I guess they have made movies now about Thurgood Marshall, but certainly not someone who has a national holiday in his honor and the like. You know, can you tell this story? Can you figure it out? You know, it felt to me almost like the challenge of my career was standing right before me. So I made some funny noises with my voice. You know, <coughs> excuse me, Justice Mar. He looks up waves me, and I must tell you, I took out the tape recorder, turned it on, and put it right down. I figured he's going to kick me out, let's go for broke. You know, I put the tape recorder right there. And, uh, and I was thinking, now, do I know the right question to ask? You know, what am I doing? And just, he starts talking. He just starts talking. It really, you know, it's one of these moments when you realize it's not about you. It didn't matter how smart I was or if I, how good a journalist I might be this older man starts talking. In a way, what it reminded me of is if you ever had, had a, 
elderly relative that you haven't gone to visit or someone in the hospital and then you finally show up and you think, oh gosh, I haven't gone, I should have gone, I should bring some flowers or chocolates or something. And when you finally get there, it's not about that, they just wanted somebody to be with them and talk to them. And it felt like that in many ways. He just starts talking. He tells the most incredible stories. He starts going to, he goes to high school and he's telling me about high school and going into courtrooms in Baltimore City with his father. And, uh, and then he starts telling me about the, how there was a, a police station next to the high school and he could hear the cops beating up the prisoners and see especially black prisoners in his neighborhood and, he was, and the cops are all white. And he's t thinking to himself as a young person about this and his father and his principal, both in terms of punishment, insisting that he read the Constitution, get to know the Constitution. All that's interesting, but then out of nowhere, he starts to talk about Cab Calloway. You think, Cab Calloway? You mean the jazz singer? Yes, Cab Calloway, the jazz singer, is in the same high school. And he is even more of a scamp than Marshall. And they're going out to Pimlico, which is a racetrack in Baltimore City. And, and, and they're going out to the racetrack underage to place bets and lose most of the time. And then they have to do what he called rinsing off the hots, which are the horses after they raced around. They're all matted and sweaty. And so these two guys, you know, Thurgood Marshall and Cab Calloway, are rinsing off horses to get money to get back, and then they're spending nights on Pennsylvania Avenue, which was kind of the black entertainment business district in Baltimore City, and Cab Calloway's sister was already a jazz singer, and, uh, and this is young Thurgood Marshall. And then he goes off to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, historically black college, which at the time was called the Black Princeton because it was founded by the Presbyterian Church, much as Princeton University in New Jersey was founded by the Presbyterian Church, but Princeton was for young, bright, white men. Lincoln was for bright, young, black men. So here comes Thurgood Marshall. His brother is already attending the school. Marshall is a big man on campus because he's always got something to say about, you know, if the football team's going off to play Howard or Hampton or something like that. He's always telling those guys, hit the other team so hard, their mamas feel. He's always got a lot of nonsense. <laughs> kind of guy who gets a you know, a cow up into the president's office and feeds it Epsom salt so it can have diarrhea right on the president's carpet, that kind of thing. You know, th this is young Thurgood Marshall, not exactly what you would think of as your future Supreme Court justice. And, and you know, he's just a big frat boy and he's always going up to Philadelphia or down to Baltimore to party, that kind of thing. And in the midst of this, in his junior year, here comes none other than Langston Hughes, the famous writer and poet. You know, it's just incredible to me that these people know each other, but no, it's more than know each other. Here they are interacting, and here is Hughes coming back already being a world traveler, having worked on boats and worked as a waiter around the country, coming back to finish his undergraduate education and saying to Marshall, you got so much to say about everything, but how come you never have anything to say about race in this country? You know, your parents can't go to a restaurant in downtown Baltimore. When you go up to Philadelphia, you can't even try on the clothes in the department stores when you go up there because no white person would want to wear a hat or a pair of shoes that a black person had had on. And you don't say anything about the fact that there are no black people on the faculty here at Lincoln. Why don't you use your voice for something more important than fraternity parties and uh, good times? And Thurgood Marshall's response to Langston Hughes is, man, get out of my face. You know, leave me alone. I came here to have a good time, to join the fraternity, go on party with some women. I didn't come here for all this political, racial stuff. You know, your problem is you should have graduated a long time ago. <laughs> and you're just coming back and bothering me. Leave me alone. 
But as fate would have it, Marshall loved cowboy and Indian movies. And there was a movie one Saturday afternoon down at the one movie theater in this small town, Oxford, Pennsylvania, near where Lincoln's located. Marshall and a group of his friends go down for the one o'clock matinee. And of course, black people are supposed to sit up in the balcony area. So that's where they go. But the young boys decide, no, you know what? We want to sit down in the lower seating area. So they come up with a plan that when the lights go down, they're going to sneak down into the lower seating area. And sure enough, the lights go down and the movie machine starts whirring and clicking. And Thurgood Marshall and his friends slip down, take a seat. But again, fate intervenes. The one usher, who's also the person that sold him the tickets, notices that this has happened. The lights go on, the machine stops clicking, and the one policeman in town comes rushing in. Thurgood Marshall and his friends go running out of the movie theater, back to campus, fearing arrest all the while. They get back to campus. Of course, it becomes, in this small black community set in this rural area, becomes sort of the moment. Everybody's talking about what happened to Thurgood Marshall and his friends. And within a matter of hours, Langston Hughes knocking at Thurgood Marshall's dorm room door, saying, I told you so. Paid your money. Didn't get to see your movie. This is what I'm talking about. That's what, this is what's going on in this country. And you don't have anything to say about it. You never do. Now, I know all of you are teachers. And you know young people about the age, actually, of Thurgood Marshall at this point. And I have children about that age. So all of us in this room know that people who are around 19, 20, 21 never say they're wrong about anything. That's just not in their nature. It's just not who they are. So I don't want you to think that I somehow believe that, you know, in that instant, Langston Hughes persuades Thurgood Marshall of the error of his ways. To the contrary, a conversation ensues. But what I can tell you as the biographer is that within a matter of months, you have the newspaper, the student paper there, quoting Thurgood Marshall as saying, if we want black people to trust us to be their lawyers, their doctors, their dentists, how is it that we can't trust black people to be our professors? And he then joins with Langston Hughes and his sociology professor, Professor LeBray, in order to get a referendum going on campus. The students would ask the administration to allow black people to teach at Lincoln. First time around, Marshall can't get his own fraternities to support it. The argument is one that he had made earlier. Gosh, if we have black people on the faculty here, what will people at other institutions think about the quality of education at Lincoln? They'll think this school is going downhill. Uh, what if that professor belonged to the same fraternity as one of the students? Uh, that might mean favoritism in the classroom. All sorts of concocted ideas to protect the status quo. But that, all that boils away, and now here's Marshall making an argument, but he can't even undo some of the rhetoric that he's put in place with the fraternity guys. And so the referendum goes down the first time. Langston Hughes graduates. Thurgood Marshall comes back and gets it going again. And this time, it's a success. And the year after Marshall graduates, the first black person comes on to the faculty at Lincoln. I mention all this because what you see here is and you know, something that all of you are in touch with every day in terms of what you do. You can see growth in a young person. You can see someone come in possessed of sort of a narrow frame and start to grow and start to understand larger political, social, racial issues in the society. And you see this in a young Thurgood Marshall. Sometimes people always juxtapose Justice Marshall 
and Justice Thomas to me, of course, both African-Americans, and they ask me about, and they always come in, it seems to me, with the presupposition that it's Justice Marshall who was the poor kid who grew up to be the liberal justice. But in fact, it's Justice Marshall who was the very much middle class kid who grows up to be liberal justice. And Marshall, who lived, lived in a segregated setting but knew and had a vision of the possibility of integration because Baltimore is a port city, had such a variety of people coming in and out. And so Marshall is this one with vision. And so Marshall, Marshall from his very narrow, middle class, secure vision, you know, a kid whose grandmother wanted to teach him how to be a cook because on the theory that he wasn't that great a student, she certainly wasn't as good as his brother, uh, and she never met a black man who could cook who was out of work, and so she wanted to make sure Thurgood was going to be okay, wanted to teach him how to cook crab soup, all that kind of thing. This kid, this very limited fraternity boy, party boy kid, is growing and becoming more politically conscious. And suddenly, the idea of law school occurs to him, that he could be a lawyer, that he could be a voice. So Marshall applies to Howard University Law School because the University of Maryland Law School does not accept people of color. His mother pawns her wedding ring, her engagement ring, to pay for his first year tuition at Howard University Law School, which now is up Connecticut Avenue here in Washington, D.C. But then was down, I don't know if you've been down around, you must have been down around Indiana Avenue, Constitution Avenue, the federal courts over there, Right behind there is Fifth Street, and there used to be a term in this town, Fifth Street Lawyers, which is kind of lawyers who would represent the indigent, and in most cases in this era, the poor black people. And Howard University's first law school was set right there in a brownstone. Thurgood Marshall was one of 36 students, and uh, Marshall comes to school. The dean, Charles Hamilton Houston, was famed for saying at one point to the students, Look to your left, look to your right. Two of the three of you won't be here to graduate in three years. And Marshall's take on this initially was, you know, who is this guy? You know, Mr. Iron Pants, Mr. Cement Shoes, he thinks he's so tough. But in fact, only six of the 36 would graduate in three years. This truly was to be a boot camp for lawyers. Charles Hamilton Houston had the idea that he wanted to produce a cadre of lawyers who could truly revolutionize American law, put the law in place to protect the rights of African-Americans in a way that the law had never been used before. Marshall's mother doesn't have to pawn anything else. Uh, by the second year, he's the law school librarian, which comes with a scholarship. And uh, he graduates number one in his class. But still, he graduates, uh, you know, this is 1933, into the Depression. There's very little work for a young black lawyer, even in Baltimore City. And he gets a call from Dean Houston. Dean Houston, by this time, is working with the NAACP looking at ways to attack segregation in American life. And one of the ways is to look at the disparate conditions of schools available to black and white children, especially in the southern states. So this summer, Houston has his old jalopy filled up with blankets and pillows and books and typewriters and an old camera. And he's going to go down and look at the differences between the schools available to black children and those available to white children. And he invites his young top star student to go with him. So off they go traveling down the roads. They can't stay in the hotels, obviously, and they can't be sure that the restaurants will welcome them, certainly not at the front door. 
They get down near the Louisiana border, still in Mississippi, and there's an old shack of a school. And when I say shack of a school, you know, you think a building, because we're in a fancy hotel here in Washington, but you think of a building, and I think that, that my words don't serve you well, because when I say shack, I mean four wooden walls. I mean no ceiling, no carpet, no floor. When rains come, I'm talking about the floor becoming thick with mud. There's no blackboard, the teacher using charcoal to scrawl on the wooden frame of the building. And most of the kids in the area don't even, the black kids don't even go to the school because they have no respect for the school and their parents can make more money from the labor of the children joining in the sharecropping. So this is the school that Dean Houston is in talking to the teacher, looking at the conditions of the school. Thurgood Marshall is outside standing by the car when a little boy approaches. And the little boy approaches and is absolutely silent, and Thurgood Marshall thinks, oh, you know, gee, this kid's never seen anybody like me. I'm a law school graduate. I come from Baltimore. I have on nice clothes. I'm standing next to this car. But the kid won't say a word. Marshall's eating a sandwich that he had for lunch out of a bag in the back seat. Finally, Marshall's like, you know, what's wrong with you, kid? Hey, you know. What's going on? How are you? And the kid still doesn't say a word. Instead, the kid is focused on an orange that Marshall has set right there on the bumper of his car while he's eating his sandwich, saving that orange for his dessert. Thurgood Marshall finally sees that the kid is so intent on the orange, says to him, you know, if you want the orange, go ahead. You can have the orange. It's okay. The kid does not move, doesn't say a word. So now Thurgood Marshall's like, man, come on. You can have the orange. Go ahead, you know. And finally picks it up and hands it to the child. And the child doesn't do any. And Marshall says, go ahead, eat it. And the kid takes the orange and bites at it right through the rind. Marshall's like, what are you doing? And the kid, reacting to the bitter taste of the rind, then pulls the orange from his mouth. And as he does so, the orange juice goes spraying all over his cheeks and his chin and it drips onto his chest, but some of it also gets into his eyes and stings his eyes, and now the kid starts to scream out and takes the orange and flings it on the ground and splatters it, and Thurgood Marshall goes apoplectic. What the hell is wrong, you crazy kid? What'd you do? You wasted my orange. And Dean Houston, hearing all this commotion, comes running out of the schoolhouse, and as he does so, he says to Thurgood, what, what, what's going on? Mar I guess that the dean thought you know, Thurgood Marshall was being attacked by some crazed segregation or something. Instead, he says, this little boy. <laughs> he says, what are you doing? Why are you screaming at this kid, Thurgood? And Thurgood Marshall's like, wait, wait, hold on, dean, you don't understand. This kid took my orange, and he bit at it right through the rind. He's thrown it on the ground. He's wasted my orange. And Dean Houston, now remember, this is Thurgood Marshall's account, so telling that he had this just burned into his mind as an old man. He says... Dean Houston says to him, Thurgood, I know I signed your law degree, but I don't think you understand what's going on here. He says, you know these roads we've been traveling up and down? Have you noticed we don't see any factories? We don't see any office buildings? That these people are lucky if they can get a piece of land from the man in the big house in which they can be sharecroppers? He said, you notice that if someone's kind enough to invite us into their home at night, to eat what little they have, and we ask to use the bathroom, they send us out back to an outhouse, and we have to be careful where we step because there are open troughs right there filled, filled with human waste. And when it comes to educating the children, the next generation in this community, Thurgood, here he turns and he points to this shack, 
He says, this is what the parents in this community have to offer their children, Thurgood. And you're going to stand here and you're going to scream at this little kid because he doesn't know anything about peeling an orange, slicing an orange, picking the seeds out of an orange. He said, damn it, Thurgood, I don't think this kid's ever seen or eaten an orange in his life. And you're doing nothing but embarrassing me, embarrassing yourself, and humiliating that child. Thurgood Marshall couldn't believe it. A guy out of Baltimore, he couldn't believe that there was a child in America, eight years old, who had never eaten an orange. It was inconceivable to him. He wrote home to his mother that night about it, and basically what he said to his mother was, you know, Mom, Dean Houston used to say to us during law school that a lawyer who's not a social engineer is nothing but a social parasite. And I didn't understand it when he said it because I went to law school to be lawyer marshal, to make you proud, to make some money. But today I met a kid who didn't know what an orange was. And I think somebody should be a voice for that child in American life. I think somebody has to let people know what's going on down here. And again, again, coming back to this idea of seeing growth in a human being, seeing people change, seeing them expand in terms of their capacity to understand larger social trends and how history impacts us all. Again, you can see this growth in terms of Thurgood Marshall. He comes back to Baltimore. And Marshall, who'd been so intent on getting his career as a young lawyer started, now finds himself interested in more of these civil rights issues and still holding a grudge, I might add, against the University of Maryland Law School, gets a friend to apply to the University of Maryland Law School. And, of course, the friend says to him, Thurgood, if anybody should know this is a feudal act, it's you. You didn't even bother to apply because the University of Maryland Law School does not accept people of color. Marshall says, no, go ahead, send in the application. A few months later, the application comes back. It's stamped, no. Marshall's like, wait a second, don't give up. Write a letter to the university president asking why someone who's an honors graduate of Amherst, someone who's been a lifelong resident of the state of Maryland, who has relatives who are high-ranking in the church here in Maryland, would be denied admission to the state's law school. This time it takes only a matter of days. A letter comes back, handwritten, signed by the university president, saying the University of Maryland does not accept people of color. Marshall's just overwhelmed with excitement because now he's got the policy written down, signed by the university president, and he can use it as the basis for a lawsuit. And, you know, the odds were against the lawsuit because all the judges are graduates of the University of Maryland Law School and the politicians are all graduates of the university. But somehow a judge... In Baltimore City Court calls the case, and uh, the lawyers for the university stand up and say, Your Honor, don't be impatient with us. We intend to build a law school for black students in a distant county, Anne Arundel County, but uh, the state legislature hasn't appropriated the necessary funds. Uh, but please don't give a thought to integrating the university at the moment because it would do nothing but damage its reputation. Thurgood Marshall, accompanied by Dean Houston and his client, Donald Gaines Murray, Stands up and he says, Your Honor, under the 1896 Supreme Court ruling in Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal is the law of the land. And if you don't have a separate and equal facility to educate young black people in the laws of the state of Maryland, then you must integrate the existing facility. And he sits down. And then there are arguments about, you know, witnesses that are to testify and evidence that's to be introduced. And they go away. They come back. 
The judge gavels the courtroom to order, asks everybody to stand, and announces that Donald Gaines Murray is to be admitted forthwith to the University of Maryland Law School. And I've seen the uh, court transcript, and they have Marshall turning to his client, Murray, and saying, what did he say? Couldn't believe what the judge had just announced. Now, the, I got to tell you, the funny thing for me is the court reporter in the transcript does not record what Murray says back to Marshall. But I've often thought to myself, man, if you were Donald Gaines Murray in this moment, what would you be thinking? And I thought to myself, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go to law school. I, you know, <laughs> oh my God. You know, he was just helping his friend out. He didn't intend to go to law school. Oh my gosh. So that case, you should know, then becomes a template that's used by Dean Houston in attacking segregation in professional and graduate schools, first in Missouri, then in Oklahoma, and then in Texas. And these cases are all resulting in wins. And by this time, Marshall, by the time they're appealed to the Supreme Court by the state governments that have lost, Marshall has replaced Houston as head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And Marshall is the one who then, inspired by Houston and by others, decides to take these victories from the graduate and professional school level down to the lower school level, elementary and secondary schools. And of course, those cases begin in 5051 and lead to May 17, 1954, Brown v. Board of Education and Supreme Court decision that separate but equal schools are in violation of the Constitution and damaging to children, both black and white, in ways unlikely ever to be undone. And of course, sets, sets a pace, I think, what we know of in terms of racial divisions, you know, massive resistance to busing, massive resistance to integration, arguments over uh, even admission. You think back to the Michigan case just a few years ago in, in, in colleges and graduate schools. Sets all of that into uh, motion. It's the Brown decision. And you think of Thurgood Marshall, he gets involved with what is called Brown too because initially the court's ruling is that integration can take place gradually uh, with all deliberate speed is the exact term that's used by the court. And then, of course, you have President Eisenhower sending the 101st Airborne to Little Rock, Arkansas to defend the right of the nine black children who want to go to Central High School. You think about all the arguments that take place in this country and, and how it's even impacted the way we live, our, the neighborhoods we live in, uh, how people decide where they live, the development of our urban cores versus our suburban areas, the wealth that's attracted, all this seems to me to stem so much from this single case that's acknowledged as a landmark in American history. I mention all this to you because Marshall, of course, goes on. He goes on to become a, the second African-American federal judge in the country in the early 60s, then the first African-American solicitor general, and then, of course, on to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, and on the Supreme Court, he's involved in such an amazing array of cases, everything from Pentagon Papers affirming the right uh, of those papers to be made public to uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, a woman's right to have an abortion, to protecting the rights of the disabled, uh, and arguing that people who are uh, mentally retarded have equal rights in this society, to the rights of prisoners, and of course involved in the Baki case itself and, and reserving and preserving, I should say, the notion that race is a legitimate consideration when people look at the issues such as admission to a college or university, Sandra Day O'Connor, in fact, cited Marshall in the Michigan case on just this point, even though Bakke won the case 
it had been in the uh, majority opinion that race is a legitimate factor uh, given America's history for people to consider when looking at students. So here is Marshall, this amazing history of victory in Brown, so many other cases, then on the court. He's been on the court. I'm doing these interviews with him, and I must say the interviews went on for months. You know, it was like every Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday, I would go up at around 10 o'clock in the morning, and I would leave at around noontime when his lunch arrived. And after it was all over, it resulted in a lengthy magazine article that appeared in the Washington Post. And I took some copies of the magazine up to give to him, and I was talking to him, and I said to him finally, I think I had been saving this question for some time because he was a very sort of persnickety person, you know, and I, I didn't want to risk offending him, but I guess I thought it was at the end of our time together here for a while, and I said to him, you know, Justice Marshall, when you look back and you see the Brown case, you know there are lots of, so many changes, so many implications in terms of American life. I had just been out in Oklahoma, and I said, you know, parents out there are battling against, this is black parents, battling against the NAACP because they want to end court-ordered school busing. They want neighborhood schools. They want their children to go to school near them. They want to have local PTAs. They don't want to have the sense that they're sending their children off to a hostile reception from people who have low expectations of them. I said, you know, just the other day I read... Uh, a piece in the Howard University Law Review written by a young man named Clarence Thomas. And I had no idea, he had no idea that Clarence Thomas was later to become his successor. In which Thomas makes the case that you were wrong to argue for integration in 54. Thomas makes the case that you should have argued for quality schools. That if you had made the case that what we want to do is make sure every American child gets a good education, you could have saved the nation so much anguish and upset because the focus wouldn't have been on race and you should never have had in mind you know a black child seated next to a white child next to a Hispanic child next to an Asian child it should have been about good schools and I said you know it you look at so many of the schools today especially in the big cities they're just under so much pressure and they're not always succeeding I said do you think that you made a mistake in terms of the way you went after Brown in 54 and Marshall, that was the longest question I'd ever asked Marshall. And his eyes had moved away from me as I was asking the question. And when his eyes came back to me, and as I told you, you know, his eyes were often filled with water that would overflow from the glaucoma, he looked at me in the way that I can only describe, some, he looked at me like, a, like I was an ignoramus, it's too harsh. But... Look, you know how maybe, I don't know if you guys are going home this weekend, but if somebody, if you were watching a movie on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon and your husband comes in the room or your kids and they start to say, well, who's that character and why are they doing that and how did that happen? And, you know, and then you finally say, you know, if you want to watch the movie, why don't you put it in some other time, you know, but I'm watching the movie. Right? It was like, it was Marshall was saying to me with his eyes, you know, you've come in in the middle of history and you act as if you don't know what came before. And he starts off and he says to me that he had no intent of creating some Norman Rockwell picture of black children next to white children, next to Asian children, next to Hispanic children. He says, no, this was about the fact that white majority school boards and school superintendents would never deliver equal facilities and equal resources to children of color in American society. 
and that in order to gain leverage to force those political bodies to deliver equal resources, you had to have in place the idea that any child, regardless of race, was entitled to attend the very same school that their children attended. And that that's what Brown was about. And how can people not understand this? And, you know, he spoke with great passion about this for an elderly person. And I remember not challenging him too much. I thought the question was strong enough, and he's certainly given a, a proper, respectful answer to the question. But I must say, as I walked out, and, you know, I walk out into this city, Washington, D.C., and we have here what they call hyper-segregated schools, because it's more than 90% black and Hispanic, and uh, they're terrible schools for the most part. I remember thinking, you know, I don't think that he could have anticipated what has happened here in Washington with the schools couldn't have anticipated the issues, the racial realities. If you go out, you know, right outside of here to Fairfax County, Montgomery County, Maryland, you see some of the best schools in America, um, and mostly white, although they are now much more diverse, and diverse with people from around the world, much more so than with African Americans. Again, I just didn't, I don't think that he could have anticipated. And he spoke about the idea, you know, that he didn't, he wasn't in touch with immigration issues, you know, he wasn't in touch with the level of resistance that had come. He couldn't have anticipated it. But, of course, the reality is one that we all live with, and certainly all of you live with as teachers, and know very well. What was really telling to me... What time is it? <laughs> thanks very much. What, thanks. My phone started buzzing. I thought, oh, gosh. So anyway, well, what was really telling to me is that toward the end of his life, Marshall was... And when I would talk to him, a guy that really felt unappreciated, misunderstood, um, someone who would say to me, you know, that uh, his contributions to history uh, would never be properly understood. And I was thinking to myself, this is someone who has done so much in American life and risen to such a prestigious position, you know, Supreme Court justice. How can he have these feelings of being somehow undervalued, underappreciated? But that was just a feeling in his heart. So I think it was so telling that when he died, and they had the, the uh, funeral ceremony up at uh, the National Cathedral here. I don't know if you've driven by there just outside of Georgetown. That it's, a, it's huge, beautiful, gothic structure. And, you know, they had the presidents, all the living presidents, for Thurgood Marshall's funeral. And then Chief Justice Rehnquist stood up and said, you know, it was such an honor to have Thurgood Marshall on the court. You know, remember, Rehnquist is an arch-conservative Marshall, an arch-liberal, and they did not get along at times. And here is Rehnquist saying, you know, there's no one on the court who'd ever had to defend uh, a doctor who has been involved in an abortion case or a woman who had had an illegal abortion but there's, there was Thurgood Marshall. Nobody else on the court had defended someone who'd been charged with a capital crime and lost and seen his client die but Thurgood Marshall, and that he brought a certain sense of the inadequacy of justice to the court. And then uh, Vernon Jordan, the famous lawyer, stood up, and Jordan, who's so politically connected in Washington, you know, said that he, when he was a young man growing up in Georgia, especially in small communities, people would talk about Thurgood Marshall and they would tell stories about how when there was some injustice with the local sheriff and they would write letters and appeal to the NAACP to please send Thurgood Marshall to help to bring this case to the courts. And 
if Marshall would ever come, there would just be such celebration and talk about Thurgood's a coming. And then Bill Clinton stood up. And Bill Clinton, you know, President of the United States, said, you know, that he owed his election as President of the United States to the man in the casket. He said, there's no way that a white man from Arkansas could have been elected, a Democrat could have been elected, believing as he did in integration, if there hadn't been a Thurgood Marshall to create a change in terms of public perceptions and public norms in our country. And that if it wasn't for Thurgood Marshall, he would never have been in the White House. And then they took the body out to uh, Arlington National Cemetery. He's buried not far from uh, the eternal flame that burns over John F. Kennedy's grave. And, uh, you know, they had all the military salutes and, uh, and, and pomp and circumstance. But the idea that Thurgood Marshall was buried and celebrated in this way, every network, uh, it's kind of odd to remember in this cable universe we live in now, but every network canceled their programming that they to carry this live from the cathedral. Um, I don't think Marshall had any notion of the depth to which people appreciated and understood his contributions to American life and the changes that his work had wrought for all of us as Americans. I'm going to stop talking now uh, and, uh, and we can do some question and answer so I don't feel, I don't rush you in terms of what you have to say. But thanks for your attention this afternoon. No, I think, uh, you know, now Davis, in fact, wrote a book about it later. Um, I'm trying to remember the, grand, but the title of the case, but it was something like, you know, he was glad he lost or something, something like that. And they, I believe that they had a correspondence that was ongoing afterwards, um, but I don't know any details of the relationship, so I can't, I can't, I can't bring it up. Um, I just wanted to ask you about your dedication in the book. Sure. You dedicated to the uh, Brooklyn, New York Public Schools. Is that where you attended school? Yep. Thank you for remembering your own education and your own teachers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, did uh, Justice Marshall speak to you at all of Lewis Redding and the Delaware Oh, yeah. Case? Because sure. Lewis Redding is, I'm from Delaware, quite a, just died not too long ago. Yes, he did. And my students have you know, researched him and there's even a school named that. Is that right? Yes. No, I mean, and the Delaware case is interesting because it's kind of the reverse of all the other, the four other cases, you know, the five in Brown. Mm -hmm. um, and and Delaware's kind of the reverse where you have the state on the side of integration. And of course, that's the result of the work that's being done by Lewis Redding. So the idea that you could have prepared the ground, that you could have gone into the political class sufficiently that you would persuade the state to be with you is so interesting. Um, but again, I think telling about not only Lewis Redding, but uh, the way the people in Delaware were, were thinking and open at the time. It really is, you know, the, the District of Columbia is another sort of ex extraordinary case in that set because here they were suing against federal law to try to allow for integration. But at once integration comes, Delaware, District of Columbia, they're among the first places that you have integrated schools. 
I think we often think the schools were integrated almost immediately in 54, and in fact, very few places, the District of Columbia, Delaware, among them, almost right away integrated. In most places, you didn't have integration until well into the mid to late 60s. Could you please tell us uh, maybe two sentences uh, about your uh, your book coming coming up? The no. title is two sentences. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The reason why I'm asking this is uh, I heard you. Uh, I, I watch you on the um, on the program of the this uh, the last weekend program, and uh, so I just want to ask those two questions. I have sure. other questions, but I want to delay. Well, no, no, not at all. Uh, you know, I, I apologize for having to. Uh, to do this radio thing, but um, this book really is, a, especially given all the experiences that you've had now as a group, but looking back towards people from Frederick Douglass to Booker T. Washington coming forward, you know, Marcus Garvey, if you will, W.E.B. Du Bois, all of that, people who have deep belief in the notions of self-reliance and uh, the ability of people to help themselves and to overcome hurdles and saying that this generation of African Americans in particular, people who are being left behind in global economic competition, which is making higher and higher demands for the quality of their education, um, have to understand these traditions. You can't wait for someone else to help you. You have to put yourself in position, your family in position, your children in position to succeed. The seed for the book really is the speech given by uh, Bill Cosby on the 50th anniversary of Brown, in which he said, the way he put it was that the lower income people in our country aren't holding up their end of the deal. Uh, that Brown and people like Dr. King and Malcolm X and others opened doors 50 years ago, but it's incumbent on the individual to walk through the door. And um, so what, in this book, what I do is I mean, you know, this is such a, it, this is a different kind of book for me. Normally I write histories and biography. But here's a book in which it's a polemic. And the idea is to say to people that there's so many negatives, I think, dragging us down, black people. But I mean, I think dragging down lower, the poor in this country, overwhelming. If you, I mean, my argument is against what I would call a culture that would say, oh, it's okay to have children out of wedlock. Uh, when you know, in, in the black community now, it's about 70% of children born are born to single parent unwed mothers. And of course, the disproportionate share of those children are born into poverty, and, are, you know, and they don't have the kind of parental guidance and attention that you need as a child, I think. To talk about the high level of incarceration of minorities in the country, to talk about um, the tremendous dropout rate, especially for minority boys in the country. And to say these are alarming things, and they are things that would retard growth and the ability to move forward in this very demanding economy, and that it's time for people to pay attention, um, that you can't make excuses, you've got to take action. So that's what the book is about. We've got four minutes. Okay, yes. Um, one of, my, uh, one of my heroes is uh, Jonathan Kozel, and his most recent book, you, you kind of touched on it already, but that um, segregation in America's public schools is almost as complete now as it was in 1954. Um, do you have any thoughts on, is, is that kind of the purpose of the book, is to kind of talk about how to start to address 
de facto segregation? Well, you know, I mean, it's not the purpose of the book at all. I mean, I th my feeling is that it's to deal with the realities of it, that we have a reality. And it's not, you know, I think there is a consequence to high levels of racial segregation in America's public school. And it's not just race. It's not just the isolation that comes from being with people of your own color. But it's also that we are increasingly a society divided by class, who has money and doesn't have money. And the middle class is shrinking, the rich are growing, and the poor are growing in this society. And if you add race into that equation, what I see is that you have a disproportionate number of the poor who are people of color getting left behind in the society. And so they're building up resentment, anger, um, and lack of opportunity, if you will, if you, can, if you consider that something you would build up. Um, and that there's a need to be sure that uh, people understand that in this generation, for anybody, regardless of race, I would say that the number one job, you know, sort of if you would, if all of us were in the grave and our families look back, the number one task that each of us should be doing is making sure that future generations in our family are in position to keep moving forward, to keep moving into that middle class or upper middle class and not get left behind and trapped in that cycle of poverty, which is so hard to escape. Um, so, and especially with the global competition going to the global economy that I referred to earlier, I think that there's an absence of jobs for people who just have strong backs. You have to have a strong mind. So that even if it's an integrated, even if it's a segregated, I should say, school, at the end of the book I make the point, you've got to graduate from that school. You've got to graduate from high school at a minimum. You shouldn't have children uh, before you're married. You shouldn't have children until you're in your 20s. And you should take any job you can get just to get into the workforce. These are basic steps that if you take will guarantee statistically that you almost never have to deal with poverty in your life, in America anyway. Um, but I think that there aren't enough people saying that. I think there are not enough people saying drugs really are crippling for poor people. You know, people have arguments about uh, why is it that crack cocaine has a higher jail sentence attached to it than powdered cocaine. You know, hey, wait a minute. It's bad to use cocaine. It's a problem. Don't use cocaine. Nobody says that kind of simple message. Uh, you don't see the NAACP leading marches against <coughs> drug dealers who absolutely undermine the quality of life in communities. So they, the, the, this book makes those arguments. And, and, uh, but the whole notion, I think, for young people, especially in terms of education, is that you've got to focus on education. I think that it's a, a negative cultural impulse when young people of color who study hard and who are achievement-oriented are condemned as acting white. I think that is the greatest foolishness I ever heard of. What, how, what a losing proposition that is. So it, that, this book tries to take on those arguments. It seems to be like that. To me, like there's like a, maybe like a sense of otherness that people create that yeah. doesn't need to be there. Like well, I, think yeah. if, I think if, what's ha if what was happening in the middle of like urban centers was happening in the suburbs, as maybe it is with like Crystal Meth, like out on the West Coast, I think you'd see a lot more people saying those things. Yeah, waking up to it. I think that's exactly right. You know, I think that, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the, the rap music and all that, I think that it, it strikes me that the huge consumers are young white people of that music. But the, for young black people who are in search of identity and what it means to be really black and true to yourself and all this, it is just so corrupting. You know, when my kids look at BET and so forth and all they see are young black people who are about 
acting like gangsters or oversexed or shaking their ass, you know, especially the girls, I think to myself, what negative images, you know, it's almost like you would say, who would put out such poison, you know, in a previous generation, you say, well, that was being put out by, you know, the people, uh, you know, by racists. So, it's, it's really terrible. You had one last quick question? Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, when Bill Cosby made his comments, uh, he was chastised by the black leadership. Uh, are you anticipating the same sort of backlash? Yeah, well, I would, you know, if you put yourself in a public position like that, there's the, it's hard enough for me reporting on President Bush. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but let's, I hope, you know, I'm 52, I hope that I can stand the storm. But I imagine that there are people who are just going to say, you know, oh, he's a black conservative or he's, uh, he's gone some crazy way, you know. But no, I mean, it just comes from the heart. It's what I truly believe. So hopefully I can stand up and take the heat. Thank you all for...